Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. This is the second part of our Romans 13 discussion. And if you haven't listened to the first part already, you probably should, so you can kind of get a foundation for what we're going into today. Um, whereas in the last episode, we, we discussed a lot of the interpretation aspect of Romans 13 and the problems with the common reading, as well as uh, how a, a nonviolent individual would read Romans 13. Um, we kind of left you with maybe some some pretty big questions because if you thought about the nonviolent interpretation of Romans 13 then you likely recognize that there are some pretty interesting implications for how that would play out in the real world so as, as just a quick recap uh, the nonviolent reading of Romans 13 tends to go something like this in Romans 12 Paul is telling us all of these things that are indicative of a Christian. He's giving us all these commands for how a Christian should live. And those commands center around love, sort of like the the 1 Corinthians 13 passage, um, where Paul asks us to be living sacrifices to God, to feed enemies, to not do evil for evil, uh, to leave vengeance to God. And then in Romans 13... Paul is going into the government, and this government is likely, view, at least at the time that Paul's writing, it could very well be Nero um, and, and during the time of his persecution, but there were plenty of other persecutions and, and difficulties for, for Christians living in the Roman Empire, and Jews in particular, um, who had experienced the just horrors of a Roman regime for uh, quite a while now, and Rome was not a pretty country. It was wicked and evil in all of the ways that it did violence, uh, as well as in its idolatry. And so Romans 13, then, is not this um, is not this pass for the government or this encouragement for Christians to be a part of government, to kind of make things right and assert control. But rather, it is God saying, look, I'm telling you how to live, sacrifice, love enemies, all that kind of stuff. And even in the face of governments that bear the sword and seem unstoppable, you can look back in the Old Testament and see how I dealt with them then. And you can trust me now that I am sovereign even over them. So you just do your thing. You just love and don't forget that I'm in control. And that's the nonviolent reading of, of Romans 13. So violence is always wrong, and God does not condone, but rather sovereignly permits governments to enact violence. But if, if violence is wrong for me as a Christian, then there's some pretty big questions that I have to ask myself. So... Could I be the commander-in-chief of my country? Could I be the president? Um, because the president controls the army. Um, could any Christian be a, a commander-in-chief and consistently live out a Christian life? 
if I couldn't be the commander-in-chief, and if I don't think a Christian should be a commander-in-chief, then can I vote for the position of commander-in-chief? Because by voting for that position and um, kind of giving my approval for it through my participation in the system, then am I not endorsing the violence of the commander-in-chief? And, and on that point, uh, maybe we'll dig a little bit deeper into it later, but, I mean, we're not just talking about some, like, going to on these just wars, because, you know, we discussed earlier, is there really such a thing as a just war? And I, I don't think there usually is. Um, but there's a, there's a great video by Noam Chomsky, uh, a, a really um, interesting historian, who just you know, from the the 1950s on, he goes on and he talks about all of the presidents and just the the wicked things that they did that, that um, you know, and how each president could have been found guilty under the Geneva Convention. Um, and so I'll, I'll link that video below, but yeah, it, it seems like to be in the position of commander-in-chief, you are pretty much required to to do terrible things um, because we we've had self-proclaimed Christians as presidents since the 1950s and they've done some pretty terrible things and that's just kind of part of politics there's this compromise um, not only violence but lying manipulating people um, violence that's not so much physical violence but um, you know, psychological or mental violence that we do to individuals and countries and and uh, other politicians that we're trying to uh, to manipulate. And speaking of manipulative politicians, what about what about Congress? Um, I mean, there there are lots of compromises that seem inevitable that should would be problematic for Christians, but Congress votes to go to war. It seems sort of like a, a conflict of interest to be a Christian who says we will never go to war um, and then kind of take an oath to protect the country, which includes, um, you know, in, in your abilities to choose to go to war. Is that possible for a Christian to hold high offices like, uh, like that of Congress? I don't know. And if you can't hold that office, then what about voting for it? Voting for that office and endorsing the things that they do. And all, all of this, all of these things so far, probably just sound absolutely ridiculous. Because to an American, this idea of your responsibility in voting and the power of politics is just um, unassailable. I mean, it, it is a given this is the way that we control the world, and this is the way that we are responsible um, in in bringing the kingdom, because that's how we control things. We control things through politics. And in, in Christianity today, especially, or maybe particularly, in conservative Christianity, there is just this um, this great bemoaning of of losing our power. Um, which which led to what I what I feel is a pretty compromised moral position of, of voting for an individual like President Trump. Um, it's because we want somebody who's 
going to kind of get us our power back. I mean, you've even got statements from from self-proclaimed Christians like Jerry Falwell, who who say um, uh, he just had a, a tweet the other day where he said conservatives and Christians need to stop electing nice guys. They might make great Christian leaders, but the U.S. needs street fighters like Donald Trump at every level of government because the liberal fascist Democrats are playing for keeps and many Republican leaders are a bunch of wimps. So you've got people like, like Falwell, which I think represent a pretty large portion of the, the conservative community, where they say, look, I don't, you know, morals be damned. Uh, we need somebody who's going to get us power, somebody who's going to give us control because we're losing it. And that's just not what you see come out of Jesus's ethic or Jesus's teachings. It's not what you see with the apostles, and it's not what you see in the early church. And we talked about um, some of the early church quotes where they prohibited high government office. I don't know exactly what that meant, high government office. Like what, you know, at at what extent did they view it compromised back then? Um, but nevertheless, even when the church was, was small and powerless, they said, we're not going to seek to gain any advantage, any power, even though we're a, we're a vast minority who's persecuted, we're not going to seek power um, at the cost of compromise. It seems that a, a consistent nonviolent position that, that would view higher government offices that delve into uh, positions of violence, like uh, let's say the armed forces, or even even uh, police dealings, depending on on how you're you're working with police, uh, especially in the United States where the police are militarized. Um, whereas in other countries, maybe it's it's not quite the same, where they're using nonviolent means for for much of the police force. Um, I don't know, but it may be that. On a nonviolent position, individuals uh, to be consistent in in uh, not compromising. Maybe they are relegated to to political or public positions like public school teachers or postal workers or city council members. And I understand that that can sound very retreatist, as if you're withdrawing from a culture. And, and I get that. Um, and, and this just feeds that notion that nonviolent positions refuse to do good in the world and that they are indeed passive. And I, I really don't think that's fair, and, and we'll get in, into why that is in, in just a minute here. Um, but, but one of the main reasons I think that's a, a problem is because you know, this is an accusation that's, that's levied by a view of politics which sees the power of of political force as legislation and coercive force which comes from places like the presidency and congress and and higher government offices who have the power to demand and to enforce through force through through violent force if necessary and that's what's viewed as true power in in, in our society um whereas you know, if I if I set up above that, being a public school teacher uh, or city council member, and you're like, oh, oh yeah, really? That's not going to get you anywhere in this world. Well, those positions, 
um, involve community. They're centered around community and dialogue. Public school teachers, uh, having been one myself, you're engaged in parent-teacher conferences. You're engaged in in a lot of community work where you you talk with other people, you problem solve, you um, but you can't shove things down anybody's throat. It's it's um, a rough, frustrating process, but it's communal. And same thing with with uh, from what I understand of city councils. Okay, maybe the city council can't call in the National Guard to enforce policies or anything, but there's there's dialogue and discussion with the community, and um, I just I just think there's a um, misunderstanding of of the values here, where where we believe that political force comes through the ability to use violence to enforce something and i don't think that's that's really truly powerful um that's not what brings restoration that's not what uh that's not what is going to foster a a deep beautiful community um that's going to perpetuate violence i understand at this point that that a lot of christians are going to disagree with me and just like uh, from episode one, I'd I'd really point you back to um, my book, which which talks about the problem of of compromise and delves a little bit into some of the politics, uh, the the political aspect of of what it means to compromise. Um, but I just I just don't think that it is the case that we as Christians can have this political idolatry which views the power as coming through coercive force as opposed to the laying down of our lives and um, not moving beyond dialogue with other people, um, but, but you know, choosing to, to use violence rather than dialogue. I just think that's problematic. But I understand that a lot of people are going to need, need more than that, more than me just asserting something even though I believe I have the weight of church history and the Bible and uh, philosophy and empirical evidence and and all that stuff behind me, I, I know that you need a picture painted for you. So that's what I want to do right now. I want to paint you two pictures. And the first picture is going to be the picture of Christendom, which is, is uh, the picture of the church when it's married to the state. And take a look at how that's lived out and what I think some of the implications are. And then we'll take a look at what I think the the kingdom picture would be. So let's start with Christen, Christendom right now. Um, recently, Georgia and Mississippi have signed abortion bills. And um, before we talk about exactly what those abortion bills are, I want you to know that, that I am extremely pro-life. I think that abortion is objectively wrong. I I think I have very good reasons to believe that and evidence to to argue that case. Um, and and in fact, I'm more pro-life than even most of the Christian uh, conservative Christians I know, and even conservative fundamentalist Christians, because. Unlike most of them, I know why I'm pro-life. Most of them probably can't explain it, other than like to say, "Well, God knit me together in my mother's womb," 
even though that's a really bad verse to use, I think, um, for for reasons that maybe I can talk about one day. But never, uh, I know lots of reasons and, and evidence, empirical, philosophical, for why abortion is is objectively wrong. Most Christians don't. I am more pro-life because I think that most birth controls are, are very problematic um, because most hormonal, hormonal birth controls for women kill, uh, have at least as a backup method, if not one of the primary methods, that it prevents implantation, a.k.a. it aborts. Well, most Christians that I know, even conservative Christians, take hormonal birth controls. I think that's problematic. Um, so I'm more pro-life. I'm more pro-life because I think that aborting an ectopic pregnancy is problematic morally. I understand it. I empathize with it. Um, and and uh, I would I would weep for people who have to deal with making that choice. Um, but if you're going to ask me if I think that that is right or wrong, I'm going to say no, that takes an innocent human life. So I think I am more pro-life than than most people I know. However, that plays out very differently for me when it comes to how I think the government should handle something. So Georgia and Mississippi recently signed abortion bills, which um, do take some big steps in criminalizing uh, the the act of abortion, or even seeking out abortions, even going to other states and seeking abortions. And they have some pretty significant uh, punitive measures built into these bills. And I can't stand it. I I really have a problem with the bill. For, for, as, for as pro-life as I am, and how I, I would... Um, I'm very happy about the lives that would be saved potentially through this bill. Um, at the same time, I just I don't think it's a good thing because this this bill isn't uh, an expression of our culture's realization that children are valuable and that um, humans are created in the image of God and uh, and abortion is wrong. But really what it is, is it's a Christian influence on the government um, that seeks to impose a, maybe maybe not a minority view, but Im- impose a view that isn't, um, isn't widespread. And so what we're basically doing is we're taking this, this Christian value that I, th- I think is objectively true, and we are forcing it on people. And uh, on a lot of people who disagree with that, and we're basically coercing them through force to to act a particular way. And obviously, I th- I think that's a problem for Christians to use coercive force or to seek out coercive force. Now, if we lived in a culture where Christians lived out these beautiful lives that the secular culture looked at and said, wow, that's wonderful, and the secular government decided to impose abortion laws, well, that's great. The secular government can do whatever they want. The government can can use coercive force. That's fine. 
but as a Christian, I'm not going to be a part of that, other than influencing through through my life. So as an example of this, we can see this in the Bible. Um, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar was a, a pretty bad guy, and it, it seems like he, he pretty much remained a bad guy. I mean, he kind of had some uh, run-ins with God uh, through, through Daniel and um, through his... God kind of messing with his mind a little bit and making him like a cow. But, um, you know, when we see uh, Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is having them bow down before the statue, uh, before this idol, and the three friends of Daniel refuse, um, Nebuchadnezzar is ticked. And he throws them in the furnace, and they're not burned. And Nebuchadnezzar realizes, holy cow, these guys really serve a pretty awesome god. And then he declares, instead of everybody worshiping the statue, uh, everybody needs to worship their god, or you're, you're going to get thrown in the furnace or be killed or whatever. So essentially, um, Daniel's three friends lived out impeccable lives, refused to compromise, and the secular king, who maybe he converted, but it doesn't really seem like he did, um, the secular king recognizes the greatness of God and imposes through force um, this objectively moral good, right? You should worship the God of Israel. You should worship Yahweh. Um, or you, you can see kind of the same thing in Nineveh. Jonah goes into this, this wicked nation he gives people the free will choice. Hey, look, repent or God's going to judge you. Do that. Like, choose to do that today. You should do that. And that's all well and good. People start repenting. But then the king repents, and now all of a sudden he imposes uh, through threat that, hey, everybody needs to worship this god. We we see those two examples in the Bible. We we also see um, we we see this in a number of other places where uh, an individual who has influence is converted uh, or or sees something great from God and chooses to have their family or or um, their subjects kind of uh, do go the same way. So through through moral influence of followers of God people who are evil and likely remain evil, at least in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, um, choose to kind of enforce these glimpses of objective truth and objective morality uh, onto, onto their culture. Now compare that to two other examples, uh, the conquistadors uh, and the crusades. So take, take these, these uh supposedly Christian uh, groups or individuals, they go to these other countries and they put guns to people's heads or swords to their throats and they say, convert or die. Now, is conversion a good thing? Is worshiping God a good thing? Yeah, it is. But when it's imposed through through violent means by supposed followers of God, that just doesn't fit. That's really problematic. And 
I think that's kind of the distinction I see here with, with Georgia's abortion law and Mississippi's abortion law. Uh, this is largely Christians trying to put swords to the throats of mothers um, to to do an objective good, but to impose morality through through force uh, at the hands of Christians. And I I don't really like that. I'd rather have it be like um like were Jonah or the or the uh the three friends of Daniel where we influence culture so that culture is so compelled that they they can enforce those laws they I mean if they're going to do violence that's that's on them but our influence is what compels them to to do the right thing and to to make those laws it's not the Christianity, it's not the Yahweh worshipers who are putting swords to people's throats because we don't do that. And and you'll see that play out when I when I paint the second picture for you. So I have I have at least four major problems with this type of political coercion. Uh, of course I have the problem that um that it's violent, but uh more than that, my first issue is that God always seems more concerned with the heart than he does with mere action. And when we look at legislation of something that, that really isn't morally clear in society, um, and, and a particular group seeks to legislate this unclear moral, really what it does is it, it tends to harden hearts. So just imagine that, say, the Catholic Church right now, who, at least on paper, is against birth control. And we get a, you know, you've got Mike Pence in, in office, and um, there's this come back to Catholicism movement, and there's a an influx of, of Catholics, and, and Catholicism grows. And now they've got enough power that they start to impose anti-birth control measures. Now, if they started doing that, and let's say they're right about birth control, let's say it's bad, and they impose that, there might be, it, it might be good that this objective moral right uh, is done in greater measure, but in in a certain sense it's not really done in a greater measure because it people's hearts aren't in it, and, and you haven't changed people's hearts. And even worse than that, not only have you not changed people's hearts, but if the Catholic Church would do something like this, they'd probably just tick people off to anything the Catholic Church has to say. Because through coercive force, the coercive force of legislation and the, the police and armies that are behind it, they're, they're just imposing their will on other people through the threat of violence. And that would make a lot of people mad, and it would just turn people off to their message. It hardens hearts to use force um, through legislation. And I know that a lot of people will say, oh, so what? We shouldn't have any laws? And I'm not saying that at all. I, of course, I'm happy that we live in a country that has laws, and that has a lot of good laws. But that's why why a law like murder is is all well and good to legislate because 
there's not any particular group that pushes for it. Everybody recognizes that, well, most people recognize that that really is a, a bad thing. And so it everybody's good with legislating that. And it's not one group trying to ram morality down another group's throat. And it, it's pretty universally accepted. So does, does that mean that I'm a relativist? And I think that um, only... Thing, o- things are only wrong if a majority of people thinks they're wrong. And no, of course not. I think abortion is wrong even though it's it's legal right now and even though there are a lot of people who would disagree with me. But my goal is not to then try to garner just enough political support to get you know, 51% of the American population to come to a certain point where we can ram this morality down other people's throats. But my goal as a Christian instead is to live an impeccable life like Daniel's three friends so that it so compels my society and the leaders of that society to desire what it is that I have and and the way that I live live life out so that they'll come to accept that morality. Um, that's a that's a heart change, and that changes society. Legislation hardens society, and and not only does legislation harden society, but uh, in a society where people are acting morally only on the surface, only only in their actions and not in their hearts, I'm not convinced that God is any less uh, any more lenient on that society because. God's not so concerned with the uh, with what happens on the outside as he is with what happens on the heart. I understand that that concept might sound a little bit crazy to people that you know God God is not going to bless individuals for having right actions even if um, even if their hearts are are kind of messed up. I mean we believe that on the individual level when Jesus says that hate is as problematic as murder. And we recognize this in the Pharisees when they have right actions, but their hearts are terrible. But for some reason, we think that that on a larger societal scale, if we can just get a group to have right actions, that somehow we we forego judgment and that that this is a an overall much, much better thing. Um, and And we just don't necessarily see that. Take, for example, in Isaiah 1, or you can take a look at Amos and, and some of the other prophets, where they just rail against Israel. And they, they say that from, from God's mouth, they say, I don't want your offerings. I don't want your feasts, your, your keeping of all of these, these things that I've commanded you to do. Like that's these these sacrifices and these offerings and and these things that you're going through in in just a um a mindless heartless fashion you're not really fulfilling the law by doing these seeming right actions by following the law to its letter um those things might be good in a certain sense but they're not good when your your heart is is not um is not good and I think we we kind of see the same thing here with legislation. 
okay, if we think that we're really making something a a Christian nation or a more moral nation by holding a gun to people's heads and telling them that they have to do something or else they're going to go to jail, that's that's not really changing hearts and that's not really foregoing judgment. At least that's not that's not the indication we would get from the Bible as far as uh, God's concerned with people's hearts. And again, we might be able to say, well, at least if we stop abortion, at least we're stopping some bad actions. So even if we don't change hearts, it's better than nothing. Um, and I just, I don't necessarily agree with that. While I can, while I can really like the fact that lives are being saved, I just think as far as as uh, legislation goes and and the power of coercion goes, I think you end up doing a lot more harm than you do good. You harden people's hearts, and you don't really forego judgment. You just make it latent and and below the surface. What you end up with in a society like this, um, I think we actually get a glimpse of that uh, in in a an issue that happened about 80 years ago. Take a look at prohibition. You've got these well-meaning individuals who see this societal evil. Uh, even if you think drinking's great, there were there were lots of problems with uh, with with drinking and um, and how that was playing out in society. And so people see some of the the evils that are playing out that are associated with with uh, with liquor and so they say hey let's prohibit alcohol and they do and what does that do well it creates gangs and it creates um, it creates a lot of problems for for the US so much so that they have to they have to revoke that because it's it's so problematic um, it it hardens hearts, uh, legislation hardens hearts, and it masks these latent problems that really fester under the surf- surface until they they kind of erupt and and um, can end up being worse than the problem itself. And so legislation just really isn't a way to change something, particularly a way to change something that doesn't have near unanimous or or majority. Uh, a vast majority of approval. A second major problem with with the types of bills that Georgia and Mississippi are enacting is that the legislation you see coming out of these these Christian quote uh, types of of bills is that it focuses on negative justice, and that's one of the things. Uh, w- working in mercy now for like the last maybe. 10 years or so, um, and working with, with people who are poor and have have all these just stories of systemic injustice or, or whatever it is, um, I realize that, that a lot of Christians focus very little on positive justice and focus almost exclusively on negative justice. And that plays out so much in this issue of abortion. Um, Keller, Tim Keller, in his book *Generous Justice*, makes a, a very good point of um, discerning this difference between positive and negative justice. And 
Um, he argues that the Bible focuses far more, far, far more on positive justice, which is this doing right to others, and especially the marginalized. And this is even probably more pronounced in the New Testament, where negative justice is really taken off the table for Christians. And they, it said, leave vengeance to God. And you do see some church discipline, uh, one of the strongest in, in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, but even there, Paul says, hey, just uh, essentially excommunicate, excommunicate the guy. Doesn't come to doesn't come to church, doesn't get to participate in our community, we'll pray for him. And if God brings it to to the point where uh, where this guy's life needs to be taken, Satan will take his life and God will preserve his soul. So, so leave him out there uh, facing Satan without the, the backing of the church is, is what Paul says. But that's about the strongest you see where... We leave vengeance to God, and um, we kind of withdraw from individuals. But most of the justice that we see in the New Testament uh, is positive justice, the, the type of justice that James talks about where, um, where true religion is to help the orphan and widow. It's doing things for the marginalized. It is seeking the good of others. When you take a look at, at laws like the, the Georgia abortion law, the law is not about positive justice. It's about power, force, and coercion. It's retributive in nature. The law is about what do we do to somebody if they do something evil, like abort. It's not about how do we help someone envision good and live it out? So so as far as I'm aware from what I've um, been able to find, these laws don't provide more resources for adoption. They don't provide more resources for women's shelters. They don't really do anything positive. It's just saying, hey, um, mothers, we're not going to consider um, how difficult it is to be a mother that um, you might be a single mother, that you might be poor, you might not know where your next meal is coming from. We don't know any of these things, um, but we're going to throw you in jail if you even seek an abortion, uh, out, e even outside of the state. Well, it's even if you're a Christian who thinks that abortion should be made illegal and you have no problem with the state using force, you're going to have a hard time explaining to me how you can be so much more focused on this aspect of negative justice than you are on on positive justice it it seems to me like you would want to put four times as many resources into legislations that would help people that would come alongside people that would provide for mothers than you would be about the retributive aspect of it and, and that's one thing I, d I don't really understand about, um, especially the, the conservative side here, which is we don't want to give government money. We don't like the way they, they use money. Um, but when we're going to convict more people and provide more jail time, um, we're okay passing legislation right here that's going to do that 
because we're going to have more mothers convicted and they're going to go to prison for a longer time. We're okay footing the bill for that retribution, but we're not okay. Or we're not going to seek out funding for uh, for adoption and, and other sorts of positive justices. I just don't get that. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we want that money if we could choose where that money's allocated? Why wouldn't we throw more of it at the positive justice as opposed to the negative? And that that just doesn't seem like a Christian thing to me. And and that aspect I think goes back again to the first episode where I talked about this um, this ideal that conservatives like me have, which is this idea of personal responsibility. And it's okay to forego positive justice to people like single mothers who could have chosen otherwise and got themselves into the situation because they kind of deserve what they're getting. That It's their responsibility. And we'll help the tsunami victim, but we're not going to help the victim who made morally irresponsible choices. A lot more that, that I could keep talking about, but I'm sure it would just be a rant uh, and a ramble, so I'll move on. So the third third problem I have with the Georgia-Mississippi bill is that it seems like it's a misallocation of resources to me. Um, as a Christian, I want to spread the kingdom, the kingdom of Christ and, and um, the beauty of his love, and I want to compel people into the kingdom. And if I think about why I love Christ, it's because he first loved me. And I've experienced that love and I see that love. And and his love is largely positive justice. It's the withholding of the negative justice, um, which there certainly will be negative justice, um, but Christ withholds that. And instead imputes to me his righteousness. He he does positive justice towards me. His enemy, uh, who was his enemy at the time that he did this positive justice to me. And the Bible, the Bible Project has a, a beautiful depiction of this. I'll put the link below. Um, of just this, what this positive justice is and how it's so compelling. But But that to me is how I want to allocate my resources. I want through positive justice, to display the love of Christ because it's through being loved and experiencing positive justice that people will see the kingdom most clearly and be compelled into it through a transformation of the heart, not just a transformation of actions through legislation that has coercive, violent force behind it. And if you have that view of how to allocate your resources... What that does is that shifts this understanding of um, true power coming through government. You say, no, that's not really true power. That's violent, coercive power. True power, the power to change hearts, the power to love enemies and to have enemies begin to love you, that power, that doesn't come through government. That comes through the church. And Christ reigns over the church. He reigns right now. He established his kingship and his power 2,000 years ago. And the church is the seat of power, not government. 
And so it the the Georgia and Mississippi bill seem like they're misallocating resources. Christians who are uh, spending so much time and so much money trying to, to lobby for these things, they're misallocating their resources. They might save some babies, and that's wonderful, and I... Uh, I love that there will be some babies who are saved by these bills. But I that doesn't mean that I, I think that the, the means being used are the right means. And um, I don't think that they are the means that represent the kingdom the best. Problem number four. I, it seems to me that the Georgia Mississippi bills the, the the types of the type of philosophy that makes somebody seek to push those types of bills forward is is extremely inconsistent and and can't be sustained and that problem largely arises because when you when you couple this willingness to use force and this idea of objective morality, then it it's hard for you to explain to me where that stops. Inconsistent application. And I talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but if God showed us what his law is, and if we believe that, that the law is objective, and we can come up with a pretty good list of, of ob- objective uh, morality, of things that we know for sure, that we can find in the Bible that are objectively uh, good or bad. God showed it to us. And God even showed us his ideal society. God showed us the types of laws that he wanted to implement in the Old Testament. And God showed us what he thought just punishment was for some of these things. Then... Why don't we seek the same sort of thing? If adultery was punishable in the Old Testament, and it was punishable uh, by stoning, why are we so against adultery being illegal today and having a harsh punishment for it today? If, If that was of God in the past, what has changed you can say that we don't live in a theocracy anymore, and that's great. Maybe it's true. I mean, it depends if Jesus reigns in power now and we're his kingdom and it's a political affiliation. Um, I mean, depending on how you define theocracy, we do live in a theocracy with with uh, Jesus as our only king. Um, but even if you're going to say that we don't live in a theocracy... Well, if you're willing to try to um, enforce abortion laws on a society that has a significant amount of people who disagree with that law, then what you're doing is you're trying to impose the law of God onto people uh, who disagree, who aren't Christians. Um, how, How does that makes sense if you're going to try to say you're, you're going to try to argue away adultery by saying we're not in a theocracy but yet you're still willing to impose this other objectively moral 
wrong abortion. You're you're willing to oppose impose laws on other people there. Well, they're they're both objectively immoral. Like what what is it? How do you dismiss one by saying we're not in a theocracy, but keep the other one? It just doesn't make any sense. And I I really have yet to hear somebody explain to me how you can have consistent application when you're willing to to use force on people to impose your morals because your morals are objective but then as we work down the list of morals that are objective we get to to a point where people are unwilling to say that they're willing to impose that objective moral into legislation and why why is that and uh I'll wait for an answer. Okay, so that's that's kind of the picture of Christendom. Uh the picture of what it's like to kind of to kind of use violent force to impose your morals on a society that has a significant significant amount of people who disagree and uh some of the problems that I I think exist there. So let's take a a look at what I think the kingdom picture is the the kingdom of Christ separated from the kingdom of man divorced from from the marriage to the state what if instead of having coercive abortion laws that that sought retribution uh, retributive justice um, what if the church instead, if you wanted to use politics like city councils and other sorts of things, what if we lobbied for government funding for uh, women's shelters or for easier, or maybe not easier adoptions, but uh, cheaper adoptions for people who, who are able to get through the system? What if the church, instead of opening for two hours once a week on Sunday morning, what if the church was open every day and had somebody at the church where women could come in and uh, and get help, get counseling or um, have have other mothers to talk to? And what if every night the church was open so that mothers could come in and sleep? Maybe maybe even mothers and their babies, their newborn babies, could come in and they could have free lodging and there would be a a, pers- a couple people on staff um, or volunteers who would help to watch the babies at night so that mothers could get sleep. Because as a single mom who probably has to work, that would be really difficult to be able to provide for your family and get sleep and take care of a newborn. What if the church adopted more people, adopted more more kids? Our church started talking with other other groups that um, I think one one initia- initiative was the six eight six initiative where we're trying to get a support group to help foster more kids. I think there was a like one 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 initiative which said like if every church in the United States would adopt would have one family that would adopt one child 
there would be no children in the United States, like foster or adoptive system, something like that. So essentially, if, if every church had one family who would adopt a kid, we wouldn't have, there'd be nobody to adopt in the United States. One family per church. So obviously, the church is not doing well with adoption. Um, I mean, I guess, yeah, we can adopt from other countries and such, but um, there really isn't that much going on, by and large, in the church. Maybe the church does more than other groups. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but nevertheless, the church isn't doing all that much. So what if the church had, if each church had several or many families who adopted what if we provided lots of funding instead of maybe instead of lobbying government officials what if we put the tens of millions or i mean i don't know how much christians spend but probably i would guess hundreds of millions of dollars spent on lobbying what if we spent that on adoptions and women's shelters and keeping churches open um, or uh, there's this this great movie called, uh, I think it's called The Dropbox. Um, it's about this Korean guy, just he and his wife. They have this box, and women can come, and they drop off their babies um, very discreetly. Nobody knows who they are. And this guy either takes care of them or finds homes for them, and a lot of these kids, most of these kids that are dropped off are dropped off because they're they're disabled. There's some some issue that makes it difficult to care for them. And this guy like cares for ten kids, he and his wife. And it it's just exhausting watching what he does. But it's beautiful. And what if we did that? And what if we or what if we supported if we had one or two people like that in our church? And we supported them, and we put our full weight behind them as they did that kingdom work. And we took that lobbying money, and we did that. We, we created these shelters around the country where women could drop off their kids. So what if the church was, was doing all of this kind of stuff? We did it consistently. We did it across our, our community, maybe across the, the county, the state, the country. And... Instead of being known for having these these picket signs at uh, Planned Parenthood facilities and instead of being vitriolic and calling people baby killers and trying to bring the sword of the state down punitively on mothers, what if we were so focused and so busy on doing all of these positive justice sorts of things, leaving vengeance up to God, that in our community, instead of, uh, I think it was the um, Barna poll just the other year, that, you, like, the, the things, when you think of a Christian, what do you think of? And people, you know, the the top one was, like, hypocrite or judgmental. Those are the, the top two things. What if instead people thought of um, loving or family-oriented or giving generous... Um, calm I mean any number of things other than what they think of now what if our reputation was such that no mother in our community would ever have to doubt 
that if they gave their kid over to the state, there would be a home for that kid almost immediately for people that were trustworthy and good. And what if what if that was our reputation rather than our reputation being um, like Falwell likes to put out there that we don't really care how we have to win. We don't want a nice guy. We want a guy who's going to kick some butt. That is the image um, that I think is compelling. And maybe you think that the Georgia and Mississippi law is is great and that um, these single mothers or, or other mothers who seek to abort, not that all mothers seeking to abort are single, but um, you think these mothers who, for whatever reason, feel like they're in a situation where they can't carry to term, um, if you think that, that a law that is punitive and um, it is really the ideal as opposed to what I just laid out, then I don't know. That, that doesn't comport with the Bible that I read. That doesn't comport with um, the Jesus that I see writing in the sand. Um, that, just doesn't, that just doesn't fit. And one of these images is compelling, and the other one is distasteful and um, standoffish. And one of them's easy, and one of them's hard. And I'll give you one guess at which route we generally pursue. We pursue the easy one, of course, right? The one where I can cast a vote every four years, and uh, I did my part. Or I can donate to um, the Republican National Convention, and I did my part. It's... Uh, it's a lot easier to subscribe to Christendom than it is to subscribe to the picture of the kingdom. And I'm speaking to myself here um, because I haven't adopted any kids and uh, we don't really do much to support anybody who, who has. So um, definitely talking to myself, but but I know which which view is more compelling and which view I want to work towards and which view I want to um, repent for not pursuing. So we, we have people like Falwell who are essentially calling us to throw off our distinctiveness, who say, we don't want a nice guy. We don't want somebody with the fruit of the Spirit because that doesn't work. Because that's not what we need right now. We need control, and we need power. But that's the opposite of what, what I see. Rather than throwing off our distinctiveness, what we need right now is distinctiveness. Not distinctiveness in ideology, but distinctiveness in action. Um, and of course, action flows from ideology. But uh, action is, is what makes us not hypocrites. Because to have an ideology is easy, but to have an ideology and follow it ourselves, not quite so. There's uh, maybe a big question going through your head right now. And that might be, well, isn't this a false dichotomy? Why can't you do both? Why can't you have um, 
the laws that you see in Georgia and Mississippi that are punitive, but at the same time also pursue the kingdom vision, which is positive justice. Why can't we do both? I think the the first answer and, and the basic answer is that in in one of these paths, you have uh, antitheses which are which are inherent. So in political power, if I'm nonviolent, uh, political power uses violence to enforce legislation, and that's the antithesis of of what I think Christianity. Uh, or Christ calls me to, and so that that's a pretty big problem right off the bat. So to to kind of embrace Christendom would be to embrace uh, something which has at its core an antithesis of what what I think Christianity is supposed to embody. And maybe maybe you can think of it kind of like um, work and money are tools which. Um, can be very good things. Work is is a good thing instituted by God, and money for me to be able to support my family, that's a a wonderful tool. But uh, those things are able to be corrupted, but they they themselves are not inherently corrupt. But at the same time, some work is inherently corrupted. So working as a a drug dealer for a gang or you know, maybe prostitution, those. Those uh, those are works, uh, jobs which are inherently corrupted, which um, isn't they aren't amoral, they're immoral. Whereas being a businessman, businesswoman, it could be bad, it could be good. It depends on on how you conduct business and what business you're involved in. Politics to somebody who espouses nonviolence would be more like the prostitution. Um, or at least higher level politics, where you're where you're dealing with violence in particular, it's something that is inherently corrupted, and and something that we we can't marry uh, at all. So we couldn't do both in that regard. I think. The other issue that I'm going to have is that there's also this concept of, of competing allegiances. And you can see that, especially right now, probably most clearly in the immigrant situation and the way that we are forcefully dealing with immigrants and the way that we are treating immigrants. And I, I really struggle as a Christian how how I can work through this issue. I was having a, a discussion with somebody about immigration, and um, you know they were they were saying, you know, we need to protect we need to protect our citizens, and I I understand the concept there, and I I know that the United States has laws, and I know that they have the governmental right to enforce those laws and that um, people are supposed to submit to laws. I get all of that. But at the same time, that seems to be a very big problem for me as a Christian because I don't know how in the world I can say that my government should protect our people uh, over, 
over the well-being of God's people, which is all people. So there are immigrants escaping terrible situations. Um, I mean, even if even if it's not uh, a situation which the U.S. Um, is required to to take them in for, even if it's just extreme poverty. Um, I, I mean, who knows? All sorts of situations. Um, for me to say that my concern is more for American citizens and American rights than it is for an image bear, a fellow image bearer of God. I don't know how I can say that as a Christian. That's not my allegiance is not American citizens to American citizens. It's not to my American government. It is to the kingdom and the upholding of the image of God. And there is no our people that I'm trying to protect. My government can choose to do that, but if if that's the job of the government, then that's not a job that I can have because that is not of God to, um, to make borders to keep people from sharing in the goodness of of what we have that's just i I can't rationalize that as a as a christian so i you know in the issue of of abortion perhaps competing allegiances doesn't doesn't come up um nearly as much as it does when uh when you're talking about something like immigration but i i think you still can kind of see the point where um if if the way that the world conducts business and accomplishes things is to legislate and to use force to make other people comport but the way of the kingdom is to live in such a way that you compel people to to change their allegiance to Jesus Christ then my use of force or my my seeking of legislation or my uh, taking on a vengeance for myself rather than leaving it to God, that's idolatry, and that's a competing allegiance. That's a competing allegiance uh, with Christ, and my allegiance is to Christ. And so uh, it's, a, it's a little bit different, but I think it's, it's a huge problem of competing allegiances when we try to say, well, I want to build the kingdom and do positive things, um, but I also want to legislate and and pursue governmental power. I just, I don't think you can do both. And I guess that would take me to, to my last point, and, um, I, I, which is I'd be very skeptical that if you do try to do both, that you're going to do both well. And, I mean church in the United States is case in point, which is um, right now, conservative Christianity in particular, but probably probably all brands, I'm just not as familiar with other brands, are wrapped up in, in political power. You see it with our compromise with, with uh, President Trump, and then you see the reaction of the the left when they lost power it was it was almost like i mean 
their hearts were ripped out. And everything is all about having to get President Trump out and getting their person in. And we just worship politics. And, um, and you can look at what we're lacking in what we do in our positive justice. And you look at other countries where, um, let's say China, where where uh, Christianity has been flourishing and growing, and you wonder how is it flourishing and growing when they're not when they're not really able to 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 be um, overt overtly in high government offices, and it just seems to me that that um, again I I have not done any studies on this, um, but I I would be willing to bet that. Uh, the quality of of Christianity, or the the image that's uh, conveyed, probably tends to be inversely proportional to um, to the amount of influence Christians have in government. Just a guess, but it at least appears that way in, in the world today. That nations where where Christianity is uh, persecuted or oppressed or not able to to legislate uh, it seems like you have you have a quality that's that's quite a bit different than you have here where we spend so much of our time not doing positive justice but trying to um, maintain church buildings and uh, rituals and and politics. Uh, so what's uh, what's required to kind of accept what I'm what I'm advocating here? And I'd have to say, first of all, you'd have to acknowledge that God is sovereign, and not just acknowledge it, but trust it that you can be faithful, and that God will um, be happy with your faithfulness, and He will accomplish His will through your faithfulness and in spite of what you perceive as ineffectiveness. So God's sovereignty is, is vital. And uh, I was going to give you some lengthy quotes by by uh, John Howard Yoder from his, his book here, um, but I'll have to skip those since we're already going long. And you can just take a look at, um, at my summary of Yoder's work and check out some of his quotes. I think secondly, playing off of that, uh, of God's use of my faithfulness, is this recognition that God does indeed desire faithfulness over sacrifice. And we see that very clearly with Saul. You know, when Saul was commanded to uh, kill all of the animals and, and um, people, uh, the Amalekites, and Saul decided to save some of the animals, and... Uh, Samuel came by and he's like, what is all this bleeding I hear? I thought I told you God said to kill all of the animals. And Saul said, well, but they, they had you know a lot of good animals here and I didn't want to just waste them. I was going to slaughter the best for God. I mean, I was doing it for God. And Samuel says, don't you know God desires obedience over sacrifice? And that's that's really what I view a lot of Christendom is doing. I, I think everybody I know is in Christendom. Um, they they are on board with the political machine, and 
they're good people. Most of them, or many of them, better than me in a lot of ways. And um, I, I don't at all doubt that uh, their hearts are are right. And the people who drafted the Georgia and Mississippi bills for abortion, great intentions, and I, I love that they're trying to save life. Um, but if I think that faithfulness is, is nonviolence, and I and I'm right about that, then it doesn't matter what people think they are doing for God if it's not obedience and it's not faithfulness to his means, then that sacrifice is is not only meaningless to God, but it's it's repulsive in some ways. And um you know, maybe I'm wrong and maybe maybe my actions are repulsive to God. And I'm willing to to um, to admit that that is a possibility. But if I'm right, then it's the other way around. Um, that this sacrifice that that people are making is is uh, for God, but it's not something that God likes. God desires obedience, not sacrifice. And third, uh, to be able to forego political use, um, part of the way that we're able to be obedient, and uh, even when it seems like it's ineffective, is that we need to be willing to give up control, and and this is self-sacrifice. So this is this is um, Philippians two again, where it's we lay down our lives and and submit to God and say, God, your will be done, and not my will. And finally, I think the hardest thing, for us to be able to forego political use, we really need to do it as a body. And this is the, the corporate nature of Christianity, is that God did not create us to be alone, and he did not create the church to be an individual, an individualistic institution. For us to be able to forego political use, we need other people to come alongside of us and encourage us and make us better and um, help convict us where we're wrong. We need a body of people willing to be the church, willing to lay down our lives, willing to trust in God's sovereignty, willing to be faithful even when we seem ineffective. And it's, it's through that corporate image especially that people will be compelled as they see our love for one another. Because it is through our love for one another that people will realize we are Christ's disciples. Before I, I conclude and recap, let me give you a, a case in point for what I think of the overrated political path. So, Modern-day abortion is considered by a lot of conservative Christians to be a modern-day holocaust. It is the, the slaughter of tens of millions of innocent children since Roe v. Wade. But Roe v. Wade, it's been about 50 years since Roe v. Wade. Um... And the Holocaust continues. And 
nothing's really being done about it. Um, Christians have opened up some, maybe some shelters here and there, and um, you know there are are uh, ultrasound vans that go around, and and there's some really creative things being done to try to help encourage moms to uh, to keep their children, and and I think you do see you have seen more in the last ten years that that have come up with people really trying to dig more into into mothers' lives. But by and large, nothing's really been done in terms of the the Christian image. This Christians aren't known as uh this group that just adopts kids uh so fast that we don't have an adoption problem. We're not known as the group that just fosters kids in in such great numbers we we haven't um shut down abortions abortion clinics we aren't going to jail for preventing people from getting into abortion clinics we don't promote bombing abortion clinics we i mean essentially what most christians do um for this modern day holocaust is we watch movies about it, documentaries. We support movies that come out to to help people know how murderous uh, abortion doctors and mothers are. And we really get riled up every four years as we vote for a president who we hope will put a Supreme Court nominee on the bench so that maybe one day we can overturn Roe versus Wade. While the uh, the concentration camps, um, the the gas chambers, the crematoriums are ramped up every day, and we pass by them, we largely do nothing. Um, we just kind of shake our heads and and vote every four years. It's essentially what we do. Myself included, I am guilty. I'm sure there are are a lot of reasons for why we often don't do anything of substance. Um, you know, I I just I think of the Quakers who who refrained from political involvement by and large in the 17 and 1800s, yet were were very involved in. Um, the abolition movement and and running slaves through the underground railroad, where I I think of uh, you know the countries like Bulgaria and Denmark, which were Nazi controlled and Nazi occupied, uh, respectively, and how through their their actions that which put their lives on the line, they were able to save thousands of Jews, tens of thousands of Jews, even though they didn't have any political recourse because they were controlled by um, controlled by the Nazis. And uh, upon reflection, I, it seems to me sometimes that when we have this this idolatry of politics that 
it promises that we're doing something meaningful, and we think that we have power in the pursuit of politics. But as, as Roe versus Wade shows us, we can sit around for 50 years and allow a holocaust to go on, thinking we're doing something. If we didn't get our guy in last year, we'll get him in four years from now. And that's kind of what our what our action is. It's this this sitting and waiting because since power comes through the political sphere, we have to wait on the on the political sphere and of of gaining power in that sphere in order to really do anything for God. And that's why you get people like Falwell saying we need to compromise so that we can get political power, so we can do something for God. And in reality We've passed five decades of doing nothing while the gas chambers are on. And I, I, I really wonder if it would be different if we didn't have this political idolatry. If instead of Christendom, we sought the kingdom. If we recognized that true power didn't really come from politics but came through the church and through investing our time and our resources in that community and through that community changing hearts and creating an image that society couldn't ignore. I just wonder what that would do. I wonder how different we would be and how different our society would be now if we pursued the kingdom rather than Christendom. I think you're really able to see the the opposite of this idea, this the opposite of this um, just kind of passivity that politics brings about. I think you see that in the movie Unplanned. And the movie Unplanned is about the story of Abby Johnson, and who was a a, a director at one of the Planned Parenthood uh, locations. And uh, Planned Parenthood, if you don't know, uh, does women's health services, but a large part of what they do is abortion services. And so you get to kind of see see the way that Planned Parenthood runs and, and um, kind of some of the trickery that goes on, on there. But the main focus is, is really the story of Abby and her transformation. And in that movie, we see a couple groups of people. We see uh, one group who comes out to the fence of Planned Parenthood every day and has protests and signs of mutilated babies and somebody dressed up as the Grim Reaper and uh, cruel signs and yelling terrible things at mothers. Um, just just very vitriolic coming out there. You also see uh, somebody uh, who ends up killing an abortion doctor, one of Abby's colleagues, and the effects that that has on on Abby and the other abortion doctors. And what you end up seeing is that all of these coercive things, these uh, attempts to intimidate the aggressiveness, really hardens the pro-choicers, the the Planned Parenthood workers, um, because they view it as a fight, and they entrench themselves, and they fight harder. And yeah, they're scared, especially after the the one guy is killed. But... um, they are affirmed in their position because they see the hypocrisy and evil and violence and hate from the other side. On the other hand, you also see this one group of Christians who comes to the fence 
And every day, they just pray. They talk to mothers kindly. They don't condemn. They, uh, they just love. And over time, they end up getting to Abby, and Abby uh, is, is able to break away from Planned Parenthood, and she ends up becoming pro-life because she, she recognized the travesty of, of what's going on with abortion, what that does to mothers, uh, what that does to human life, and she escapes. Now, while we don't really see legislation uh, represented very much at all in, in, the, uh, in the movie, I really ask, what is legislation more like? Is legislation more like a coercive measure or more like love? And it's certainly more coercive, and Stanley Hauerwas um, uh, says that well in, in a video I'll link below. But um, voting is really coercive. It's, it's 51% of the people trying to impose their will on the other 49%, essentially. And what would passing legislation really do to the abortion industry? Well, it, it doesn't really do anything. It would entrench people in their views. It might stop abortions for a time and save some, some children's lives, which would, would be beautiful, would be wonderful. Um, but it would end up hardening people and their hearts to the issue. They'd fight harder, and probably just in a few years legislate right back that abortion's fine, and put uh, bigger hurdles in the way for uh, abortion to be taken away again. Um, so, in the end, you save some lives, which is good, but you perhaps even end up doing more damage in the end, and not changing hearts. Now you might say, well, isn't that at least better than doing nothing? And you might think so, but I really like what the movie Unplanned puts in that I wasn't expecting. And I don't think most people really latched onto this, but but I did. Abby, at the end of the movie, is talking to uh, her pro-life companions, and she says, you guys don't realize how important you were. Because at some facilities, up to 75% of women who were coming in for abortions would turn away if they saw people praying at the fence. Prayer at the fence, in some cases, turned away 75% of women a day who were coming in for abortions. What, what more beautiful depiction could you get of, of what I'm trying to argue here? Is that faithfulness to God, we might not understand it, we might not think that there are any results, but faithfulness to God is what he asks for, and he determines results. And you just see what he's doing when people are praying at, at, at the fence, just being faithful and coming out and loving and not, not screaming vitriolic things. He's, he's, he's working on women's hearts, and it turns them away from abortion clinics in numbers as great as 75% sometimes. And that's amazing. And these are the people the people who are living out the kingdom, love, these are the people who changed Abby's heart, not the ones screaming, not the ones lobbying, um, not the ones who are killing her colleagues. It's the ones who persistently love, who give up their time, who withhold condemnation, who are coming, and who are able to change Abby's heart. And I, I really just wonder, if... If a couple people praying at a fence can turn away 75% of women, and if a couple people praying 
can change an abortion director's heart. What would it be like if even 50% of the church would do this? If we would just go out and pray at abortion clinics, one day a week maybe. Or if uh, we'd use some of our vacation time, take a day off of work here and there, and go to a fence and pray. Or if instead of using our lobbying money, we would, uh, we would choose to adopt kids uh, of, of mothers who are in crisis. I mean, just, just all of these positive things, as opposed to coercive, aggressive sorts of things, would change hearts and impact people. And I'm really thankful that Abby was able to have that insight and, and share those statistics about the true impact of, of faithfulness, um, because that's really helpful. But, you know, to be quite honest, most of the time, we're just going to have to trust in God that faithfulness is the best thing and what he wants, because most of the time we're not going to see those results here and now. And we're just going to have to be content in trusting that God will uh, will bring about his good and perfect will through foolish means, through our faithfulness. So if you want to see a good good depiction of the kingdom, go ahead and, and watch Unplanned. And then think about uh, our, our actions of voting and what that all uh, what that all means and how that encourages passivity. And uh, I'll, I'll recommend a resource here that I think is, is really good in terms of showing how uh, voting can be a passive sort of thing, how political idolatry can be problematic. There's a, an interesting uh, video on this from the followers of The Way, the, the people who kind of helped me to uh, get on the road to pacifism. It's called uh, something like Voting... Uh, an abdication of responsibility. I, I don't necessarily agree with everything that's said in there, but I, I think it should certainly give you pause to think about how political idolatry shapes the way that, that we think we're acting in the world, but are actually um, being largely passive and handing over our power to a political system rather than submitting to our, our king and living out the kingdom life. I also do want to mention that uh, there are, are varying degrees of how non the nonviolent position would handle politics. And there are a lot of people who have no problem with, with politics, by and large, uh, as nonviolent individuals, and they have varying ways of, of explaining that. So... Uh, again, I'm still out on this, and I I don't really understand all of the ramifications, and I don't exactly know what I believe about where to fall politically yet. And I, I've just tried today to kind of give you uh, the strongest viewpoint on the other end of the spectrum, which is that we should really avoid most forms of government. Um, probably, if I'm going to land somewhere, it, it might end up being somewhere more towards the left of this, more towards uh, accepting some more forms of government. But today we just kind of, we kind of went to the extreme and looked at what the opposite of a full government embrace looks like. You can, you can take a look at some 
other books, you know, I mentioned The Politics of Jesus, which might touch a little bit on this type of thing. There's a, a good book called Electing Not to Vote, and there are, I believe, seven essays in that where seven individuals talk about their their moral dilemma of, of voting and how that kind of played out in their rationale. It's not super theological. It's not going to get you lots of deep answers, but it will at least get you started on on why people might feel convicted in different ways and how they kind of work that out. There's certainly, like with most beliefs, there's certainly a spectrum here, and uh, everybody's pretty familiar with the embracing of government aspect on the spectrum, and I provided you with the opposite of that, so figuring out where on the spectrum you land will be will be helpful for you and kind of working through that. I'll also put at the bottom a link to a an article that I or a video I believe uh, by Gary Habermas not Habermas I'm sorry uh, um, Hauerwas Stanley Hauerwas and um, Hauerwas has a a really good video discussing how legislation is in fact coercive force or how it has that behind it and um, I think that's really helpful because we we oftentimes view voting as as this activity where we all get together and we nicely just kind of agree to to something. And that's somewhat true. I mean, it's certainly more true than, than uh, other forms where there's violence inherent in the system. But nevertheless, there is this idea of force behind legislation. And Harawas, I think, uncovers that pretty well and explains why individuals would have an issue even with voting, even if they're not going to be the commander-in-chief themselves, why voting is problematic for them in regards to legislation. So I'll put that at the bottom as well. In conclusion then, trying to wrap this all up, God calls us to faithful obedience, not to sacrifice. He calls us to live how he has uh, has shown us and how he has taught us uh, in his full revelation, Jesus Christ. And if that obedience means enemy love, foregoing violence, and giving sole allegiance to the kingdom over governments, then that's what we ought to do. A kingdom ethic that is lived out in this way compels people through its biblical emphasis on positive justice, while simultaneously not undercutting its legitimacy through violent imposition, which only hardens hearts. The kingdom in the church is true power, which is where true power lies, whereas waiting on political action is not only inconsistent with Christianity, but ineffective. So in closing, I, I really hope that you can see um, that I've put a lot of thought into the implications of what a nonviolent reading of Romans 13 gets us. And rather than, than my conclusion making me feel like I'm missing out by withdrawing from certain spheres of political power, the spheres that our society views as most powerful because... They have the power of the army and the police and uh, legislation behind them. Um, rather than finding that uh, cumbersome, I find it freeing. 
and it it um, helps me to recognize that I'm not just one out of a couple hundred million votes, but I am a a uh, integral part of the kingdom of Christ, uh, it, whose king is is reigning in power now and who is promised victory and I go out in that power and I hope you will too so that's all for now so peace because I'm a pacifist I say it